welcome to The Mental Society. I'm Amanda Dolan. On today's episode, I'm going to dive into some of the numbers around mental health, substance abuse, financial numbers, criminal justice numbers, lots of numbers. I'm going to do my very best to make this interesting. I don't want you to feel like you're sitting in a lecture or feel overwhelmed by all of the numbers. Um, I know that there are some people like me, I love numbers. I think they're fascinating. And there are other people who just glaze over and their brain shuts off because, well, numbers aren't always fun. So the purpose of this is less to be very specific with the numbers. I don't want you to feel like, you know, I need to remember everything to take a test because I'm going to provide lots of resources so you can dig in on your own um, later and figure out uh, what all these numbers mean in your world. But I just want to highlight some of the things that are shocking to me and important to know uh, so you can see the big picture and how mental health um, really does show up in all corners of our lives. So let's just kind of begin with the basics. Um, and the numbers, by the way, that I'm using are United States focused. Uh, there are plenty of numbers for the rest of the world as well out there. But for today, we are sticking to the United States because that is easier. Um, so here in the United States, about 50 million people uh, have some sort of mental illness. Uh, that's, you know, everything from kind of a minor depression all the way up to, you know, what we would consider a severe mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar or major depression where you know, you're suicidal and can't function. Um, but that's just any mental illness is that 20% or 50 million people. And that's a lot of people. Now, serious mental illness, which is a mental, behavioral, or emotional disorder that creates serious functional impairment. Um, and it interferes with your daily activities. Um, and these are often the people, you know, with serious mental illness who are on disability, who can't work full time because their brains just aren't working the way that um, is required to do a lot of those everyday tasks consistently and well. Um, so yeah, there, that's it. You know, we've got 20% of people have any mental illness and then one quarter of those or 5%. Yes, that's a whole lot of numbers, but that means more than 10 million people in the United States have a mental illness that interferes with their life and their everyday life and their ability to function. Uh, and that's that's a lot of people. And that does impact, you know, our government and our money. Because if we're spending money on disability, which is absolutely necessary because those people need to live and survive and have money, but they're also not working. And um, 
they're giving back in different ways, just not in the workforce. And I want to make sure that I make it very clear that there's no judgment here. If you have one of those serious mental illnesses, this is just information. Um, and that's somebody, those people with serious mental illness, they have a lot of other obstacles to overcome. Um, okay. Now, you know, mental illness and substance abuse tend to go hand in hand. So um, talk for a minute about substance use disorder. That's what what the uh, American Psychiatric Association is calling that now, not addiction, though addiction is certainly part of that. Uh, substance use disorder is so broad and so big when you look at the core of it, which is just a complex condition where there is uncontrolled use of substance despite harmful consequences. Uh, and there are all sorts of different things that you can look at with that. Um, that's everything from binge drinking to, um, you know, a meth addiction that you, or heroin addiction where you are homeless and are stealing every day to provide for your addiction, to find that money to pay for the drugs that quite frankly, at this point, your body really kind of needs to survive. If you're in that real addicted, physically addicted space. Um, again, here's just a whole lot of numbers. Drug abuse in the US um, costs us about $270 billion. Now that is including things like the cost of crime and the criminal justice system, keeping people incarcerated, prosecuting them, all of those things. The increased healthcare costs, uh, like from overdoses, hospital stays, a loss of work productivity, because if you're high or you're drunk, you're not going to be as effective at your job. And uh, so your productivity is going to go down. Um, now, those numbers, we're not even counting things like the loss of life or injury, say, from a uh, drunk driving accident. Um, so just something to think about, that that $270 billion doesn't even take into account people's everyday lives and things that they might lose that are intangible, not um, not a bill that you see from the hospital. Now, while like those are the numbers, let's talk about the number of people that that are affected um, by this or or that could have that diagnosis. Eight percent of Americans, meet the diagnostic criteria for a substance use disorder. Now, that does not mean that everyone is diagnosed with one or even that they see a problem with it. Because here's the thing is about 175 million Americans, which is like half the population, have used or misused alcohol or other drugs. Now, there's a big difference, right, with having a drink at dinner, having a glass of wine and having a bottle of wine or 
having a beer while you are grilling with your friends and having a case of beer. Um, so that, you know, that big number uh, of people, let's remember that it includes use and not just misuse. Um, but here's the thing is one in seven Americans will develop a substance use disorder because substances, I mean, and I'm specifically thinking of things like alcohol, um, it's such a part of our culture. And we could dig into the whys of substance use. And I think that's for a whole other episode. Um, but here's some other interesting things. And, and I'm going to get into this in another episode, which I want to talk about access to care. Um, but only 10% of people with a substance use disorder receive care. But here's the interesting thing about that is that for every dollar spent on evidence-based intervention, we save $58 in healthcare, criminal justice, all of those things. Um, it's, it's just fascinating to me how much money we save when we efficiently and effectively treat mental illness and substance abuse. Um, and again, I'm going to get in just a minute a little bit more into access to care. And all of these are probably going to be episodes on their own later. I just want to give you a really big overview. Um, so here are a couple other interesting statistics. Um, half of all mental disorders that are lifelong show up by the age of 14. And that is, is interesting. It's information. Um, and I was talking to a friend who whose daughter has not been diagnosed with bipolar because she's not 18 and they don't want to, you know, put that diagnosis on her yet or treat her for that. And I have thoughts and concerns about that. And hopefully we'll get into that um, with a professional later who can share more about the whys of that. But also three quarters of mental health disorders begin before 24. So that means that young people are where intervention really needs to start, in my opinion, because the earlier the intervention is, um, the more efficient and effective the treatment is and the more skills people will have to live with that mental illness. Um, and so I just, you know, think about that. Think about how many people you know that started feeling some kind of funky way with their mental health when they were in high school or college or, you know, in those first few years of adulthood. And then think about like the access to care that you really have when, you know, you're first out of your parents' home and you're no longer on their health insurance. Um, and what that might mean for your ability um, to go and receive treatment. Um, so 
let's kind of dig in a little bit to access of care. This is where the numbers can get very like, ah, because if you dig into the math, like I love to do, um, yeah, it's just, it's a lot of numbers. One of the things that I found interesting is the lack of mental health care providers um, and the shortage there is here in the United States. Only 27% of um, our health care, mental health care needs are being met. I believe that that number is higher. I've linked um, below a blog that I wrote with a whole lot of numbers and math in it. If you want more of that, go in and dig into that. But I want to highlight a few quick things here. Um, what the U.S. government says meets the requirement for uh, adequate mental health care um, and access to it and enough providers is, in most places, for every 30,000 people of the population, one psychiatrist is needed. And for every 9,000 people in the population, one therapist is needed. Again, I can go into numbers and what all that means. Um, but what that really just means is, is think about like how many people, if 20% of the population has a mental illness and 30,000 people are expected to be, you know, cared for by one psychiatrist. I just, I have, I have thoughts and I would encourage you to do some thinking and, and look at some of the resources and, and see what you think um, treatment availability and access to that care should be. At this time too, I wanna to make a note that in the United States, we are only meeting about 38% of um, dental needs for our population. And we only have about 48% of healthcare providers necessary to provide adequate and comprehensive care. So this is not just a mental health issue, this is a healthcare issue. Um, and there are things being done um, with this. I've talked to some of my state representatives who have talked about implementing um, incentives for people to move here to Texas um, and making it easier for out-of-state medical providers to come here. But still, we are far, far away off from having enough providers. And then I want to add that those people that are providing care, well, a lot of them aren't taking insurance and that makes healthcare unaffordable, that mental healthcare unaffordable for a lot of people. Um, you know, right now there are, gosh, 40% of people don't receive, like they don't, make the decision to re receive care because of the cost, but 30% of people with a serious mental illness don't receive treatment because of cost. And remember those people with a serious mental illness, those are the ones that aren't functioning well in their daily life. And mental health treatment will likely help them function better, but they can't afford it. And you're stuck in this vicious cycle, right? Of can't work to make money because I my mental health isn't great. 
but I can't get my mental health great because I don't have money. And I don't have money because my my mental health isn't good, right? It's just this, it's, it's a cycle and it's frustrating. Um, and when I talked about people, mental health professionals, you know, not really taking insurance anymore, um, I found this statistic interesting is that only, um, only about half of psychiatrists take insurance, but 90% of other doctors do. Um, and most therapists, like 80% of therapists don't take insurance. And when you consider that an average therapy session is $90 and an average psychiatrist visit is over 200, that's a lot of money. Um, and I just think about like, how many of us really have that much income available, even though it's for healthcare, but that much income available to spend. Um, and this is again, where I could do all the math numbers and everything, but you know, even if you're only seeing a psychiatrist four times a year, that's about a thousand dollars. There are a lot of us out there that don't have a thousand dollars available, even though it might mean a better quality of life for us. Um, and I find it interesting why healthcare provider, mental health care providers don't accept insurance um, as much as they used to. And really what it boils down to is um, the rates that they're paid back by insurance companies um, is significantly lower than the going rate, if you will, for um, people with that level of education and expertise. But also it's things like to get reimbursed, therapists often have to give you a diagnosis. And you may not have a diagnosis because mental health and therapy isn't just for people with a mental illness. It's for people who just want to live better, who want to function in the world at a higher level. So, you know, that that again, your insurance company isn't going to take insurance unless you have a diagnosis or insurance companies want to look at all of those notes um, and see what you said in your therapy sessions. And a lot of therapists don't want to break that confidence and to put that much um, information in the hands of the insurance company. Um, all right, so that was a lot of numbers so far about how many people are impacted by mental illness and serious mental illness and substance use and access to care. Um, and so now I wanna like dig in a little bit to how that kind of shows up in the world when we see things daily. Um, so like homelessness, I think a lot of people just make the assumption that people that are homeless are lazy or they're not willing to work. Um, but, you know, the thing is 30% of people who are chronically homeless have a mental health condition of some sort. And 50% of those have a co-occurring substance use problem. 
I think substance use for a lot of people is a way to self-medicate because they can't afford the treatment. Um, I know that's something that was true for me. I, um, with my bipolar and my ADHD, my brain was busy all the time. And so um, whether it was getting high or drinking, it quieted things down and made life a little more comfortable for me. Um, so mental health is hugely impactful when it comes to homelessness. And then that goes back to care. How many homeless people do you know have the resources to go and pay that $200 for a psychiatric care visit? Um, and it can take months sometimes to get in for treatment at your local like mental health um, government mental health clinic. Um, and if you are just trying to survive daily and find a place to sleep and find food to eat, your mental health is definitely not number one on your list of priorities. Um, and homelessness, um, all of this kind of also digs in and, and it goes back into the criminal justice system and the cost of, of what we in America, like the amount of money that we in America spend, right, on criminal justice, uh, prosecuting, all kinds of different things is high. Um, we, you know, have one of the highest, if not the highest rate of incarceration. Um, and again, that's a whole other conversation. But I want to highlight a couple of things specifically around substance use and dependence. Um, almost 60% of people in jail and in prison have um, a history of dependence on substances or abuse of substances, whereas that number is about 6% for the whole population. So we're talking 10 times more. Um, and then also in prisons, um, and there is a difference between prison and jail. You know, prison is is typically state or federal and for felonies, um, more serious crimes. Jail tends to be a local, you know, misdemeanor type uh, place. So I, let's make that kind of clear here. But um, what's interesting is that 14% of people that are incarcerated in prison have a serious mental illness. And if you remember at the beginning, I talked about that about 5% of the population as a whole has a serious mental illness. So in prison, it's three times more roughly than the average, you know, the average of the population as a whole. But in jail, that number jumps to 26%. So it's five times. So what's going on there? that we have such a discrepancy of serious mental illness and incarceration. Um, and it's something to look into. And I don't have answers. I am just sharing some information so we can start opening up conversations. The other interesting fact that I found is 
rates of mental illness increase as the number of arrests increase. And what that tells me, and make your own conclusion, is that people with a mental illness are more likely to have um, chronic interactions with the criminal justice system, whatever that looks like, whether it's substance use or um, theft or assaults. I don't know. I don't want to dig into those numbers, but it's just interesting to point out. And when I think about all of this, it's it goes back to access to care and how are we helping these people keep from reoffending? Are we ensuring that they have adequate mental health treatment, not just while they are in custody, but the resources to get that treatment when they are no longer in that controlled environment? Um, so, you know, a lot of what I feel like I've talked about really does come down to access to care and how much money we're really spending, um, in this, you know, on this, um, and how much of our energy and effort is being put into mental wellness. Um, so the last thing I want to touch on is mental health in the workplace. This is what I find fascinating. Um, because not that long ago, I found an article that referred to a study that was done by the University of Chicago. And in the show notes, I'm going to link some really, some things about that study and some things that came out of that study, um, which included a, a mental health calculator um, and how mental health impacts workplace. Um, so here was the fascinating thing about that study, more than anything else. For every dollar invested in an employee's mental wellness, that may mean therapy, extra time off, like personal days, those mental health days, um, or, um, you know, access to um, other self-care kind of things. Um, for every dollar that companies invested in that, they got a $4 return on investment. How many of y'all out there would throw money into something if you knew that in one year you would get $4 back for every dollar you put in? Because I sure as heck would. But these are the numbers that I really found interesting when I was looking at this, is that people with mental illness or mental distress is, I believe, what they called it in this study. Um, and that could mean a mental illness, but it could also be someone that just lost a loved one or someone who um, had a, even just a bad fight with their partner at home. So mental distress is it's kind of broad and not very well defined, but the numbers are still fascinating. Um, so people that are experiencing mental distress spend on average $2,800 more in healthcare a year than their peers without mental illness or that mental distress that we talked about. Um, that's a, that's a pretty good amount of money. Um, and then 
those same people who are experiencing mental distress uh, cost companies about $4,700 each in missed work a year. That's not an insignificant number either. And I used to work in um, HR. And so this number hits close to home for me in a different way, which is about turnover. People with um, mental distress, they um, cost companies about $5,500 in turnover costs a year, um, more than their peers without that. So here's the thing about turnover is it's not just losing an employee, but people don't fully, and, and this is something that, that I've always talked about is keeping an employee is far cheaper than finding a new one. Because when you're looking to find a new one, you've got to place those ads, you've got to interview. That's taking time away from other tasks that those people that are doing the hiring could be spending their time on. You've got to train that person, which may mean that you're taking someone away from some of their tasks to make sure that this new person knows what they're doing. So when companies can keep their employees, it saves a lot of money. It saves a lot of time and energy. Um, and I think, my opinion, when people stay, it creates a different environment because people are connected and you get to know each other. And I would argue that having those connections and having that support system at work, in addition to at home and in your social circles, that helps lessen the impact that mental distress, stress overall um, has on your daily existence and your life. So yeah, that's a lot of numbers and a lot of information. And in the show notes down below, there are a bunch of links. Um, I really tried hard to find links, um, find research from reputable sources. Um, a lot of these have come from um, the government. Um, and by that, I mean the National Institute of Health, um, also places like, um, you know, uh, sorry, like mentalhealth.gov um, and, and places like, you know, uh, the Surgeon General. So I would encourage you to take time and look at some of the numbers um, and the areas that might interest you. And remember um, that we can manipulate numbers a lot to fit our narrative. And I'm a big fan of follow the money. Like, what are these people gaining by having these numbers available and what's the purpose of that is it to provide more funding um and if it is who's benefiting from that funding is it just the people in need of care or is there a person or a company um something for profit behind it um so think about that and and dig into that a little bit too because these are the numbers I found, and I'm sure there are different numbers other places because, you know, 
we can make numbers look like what we want them to. So, you know, take a few minutes or a few hours or no time at all if this gave you what you wanted um, and needed uh, and go from there. So um, now at the end of um, each episode, I want to give y'all or um, in the future when we have guests, I want them to give you, you know, a quick little tip or trick that you can take with you um, at the end of the episode. Uh, and so those are our mental memos. And today's memo is, um, you know, now that it's it's getting darker earlier and getting lighter later in the day, we don't have as much sun. Um, and I know we all know about, you know, seasonal affective disorder and, and all of that, but uh, just a few minutes in the sun every day can increase the amount of vitamin D in your body. And the sun is the best natural source for that. Um, the sun actually impacts your mental health and your mood more than any other environmental factor, whether that's rain or the temperature, um, anything like that. Uh, and then the added serotonin that the sun gives you can actually help you sleep better at night. Um, so this is your reminder to go out, spend a few minutes every day in the sun. You will say from another self-care you know, point of view, if you're spending too, like not too much, I don't know that you can spend too much time in the sun, but if you're spending more than 15 or so minutes, make sure you put that sunscreen on. This is just, that's my own little PSA there. But this is also your sign that you need to maybe get up from your desk every day um, and go outside. So I'm giving you permission to take a break in the middle of the day and go outside and soak up that sun and uh, take a few deep breaths and, and reset yourself. So with that, we have reached the end of today's episode. And thank you for sticking with me through all of those numbers. Um, thank you for listening and learning more about how mental health and society meet. Now go out into your world, your society, open a conversation and discover all the ways that mental health is being experienced by the people around you. You can find more about the Mental Society podcast um, and more information about mental health uh, at our website, um, which is thementalsociety.com. Also, you can find our podcast on all the places that you find your favorite podcast. And I want to remind you that you're not alone. Hope and help are all around you. Until next time. This is Amanda Dolan, wishing you good health, mental and otherwise.